Good afternoon, everybody. I'm hoping that um, you can all see me and hear me. I um, am one of the co-chairs of the Wetlands Waterways and Water Quality Committee, and I'm very pleased uh, to present our two speakers uh, this afternoon to give us a lot of detailed information about the multi-sector general permit um, uh, and with particular emphasis on the um, on the industrial side of um, of the effects of those the uh, effects of the permit here in Massachusetts, EPA is uh, proposing changes to that permit. The draft is now out for public comment, and um, we'll hear a lot more about the proposed changes and uh, opportunities to comment, as well as the effects of in, of those changes here in Massachusetts. So um, I want to note again that this presentation is being recorded and um, then uh, uh, also that questions will be entertained at the end of the presentations. So please enter any questions you have along the way with the Q&A function. Um, and with that, I'd like to introduce both Adam Quested and David Gray. Adam is a licensed civil engineer. Um, with Geosyntac Consultants in Acton. He has spent seven years living in California uh, before returning here to Massachusetts. Welcome back. And um, has worked on a variety of uh, municipal and industrial stormwater projects. Much of this work has been, um, has included work to provide Clean Water Act litigation technical support and settlement negotiation for public and private clients. He has experience leading non-industrial and natural background source demonstrations and implementing cost-effective compliance strategies to meet strict water quality requirements for industrial and municipal clients. Um, he um, has been developing watershed-based plans and stormwater compliance strategies most for local New England communities recently and has been working with practitioners around the country to identify alternative funding sources for MS4 and TMDL compliance through community-based public and private partnerships. Thank you for joining us, Adam. Uh, yeah. David Gray is um, our other panelist and he is the acting chief of stormwater and construction permit, uh, the permit section for EPA New England. His responsibilities include individual and general NIPTES permit, permitting for municipal, industrial and construction discharges with an emphasis on stormwater and wet weather management. He has managed pollution control projects ranging from social marketing campaigns to, I'm sorry. To fate and transport modeling and DNA tracking of pollution sources. He is currently serving on EPA's work group that is reissuing the 2020 multi-sector general permit. And before he worked for EPA, he worked at MassDEP. Um, I would like to uh, welcome both of you all. And I know we have a lot of content to cover. I'll turn it over to, right, right away to Adam. Take it away, Adam. All right, thank you, Anne. And thank you everyone for joining us today. Let me just share my screen here real quick. And can you just confirm you can see my slides there? 
I can. It's um, not quite in slideshow mode, but yeah, I can F. see them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna change that again. All right. How's that? Perfect. Great. All right. Well, thank you again, everyone, for joining us today. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, as Ann mentioned, we do have a lot of information to cover. And so I'm going to move through these slides a little bit quickly. Um, I'm going to punt a few of them to David. He's going to cover some things in more detail after me. But I also encourage you to reach out to me or David after, um, send an email, call anytime um, with more specific questions. Here's a general agenda. We're going to spend a little time looking at what is the MSGP, the multi-sector general permit itself. David's going to kind of hone in on that later. Let's focus a good amount of time on what are the proposed changes uh, for the 2020 MSGP. And then based on experience, um, West Coast, we've the, the state administered general permit there is very similar and sometimes more stringent than the proposed MSGP. So I'd like to share some lessons learned um, on how to proactively pending changes um, under this MSGP. So let's get going. The, what is the MSGP real quick? So this has been around for a while, um, whether you're familiar or not. Um, this will give you a couple slides. And as I mentioned, David's going to dig in deeper. But it was a, a permit developed in the 90s. And really the intent um, is to allow industrial facilities to discharge uh, stormwater runoff from their industrial operations. And in addition to this permit um, applying to certain areas within the country, which we'll show in a couple slides, uh, EPA also does provide the opportunity for states to administer, administer their own industrial permit. And so the MSGP will inform a lot of those uh, requirements as well on the state level. As we've discussed already, this current permit, um, the 2015 permit, is set to expire in June. That is um, expected to be administratively continued until the new permit's available. Um, but for now, the draft 2020 has been submitted and it's undergoing 60-day public review. The comment period has been extended uh, to June 1st, so you still have time to submit your comments a couple weeks away. Um, and we're not sure the exact effective date, uh, but that is still Again, David's going to touch on this, but um, back in 2016, there was a settlement uh, between EPA and, and a group of petitioners. And out of that settlement, EPA agreed to sponsor a study uh, that was administered by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. And this study is now publicly available. It's free to download at the link here. And these experts uh, around the country reviewed the MSGP and provided a summary of recommendations for improvement. And as you'll note in the, if you reviewed the 2020 MSGP, many of these recommendations are incorporated. This map just shows the areas of the state where MSGP, MSGP coverage is available. Um, so the black areas of all industrial facilities within those states would be, uh, would be eligible for MSGP coverage. The gray areas represent some states provide limited coverage, such as only federal operators um, or national parks may, may be eligible for coverage. And then the remainder uh, of those states would be administering their own state level permit. Um, and so which that would be informed by the MSGP. So what, what industrial activities are regulated? There are, uh, there are 11 categories. You can see some examples on the screen here. 
So different um, forms of manufacturing, landfills, has waste storage, oil and gas, wastewater treatment plants, um, warehousing, transportation and facilities and scrap yards. This is further detailed in the, in the permit itself if you have specific questions. Um, this also includes light manufacturing, which tends to be conducted within covered warehouses. Um, and we'll talk about potential no, exclu no exposure exclusions that may apply there. And then also this technically does include construct construction sites that deserve five acres or more, um, but that's typically permitted separately under the construction general permit or a similar permit. And so we're not gonna go into that in, in so much detail here. And then just one other note um, per the Code of Federal Regulations, if a facility is subject to effluent discharge requirements, then they would be subject to the multi-sector general permit as well. These categories are further defined by a standard industrial classification code, which you may be familiar with. Um, and the MSJP does a nice job of grouping these different codes into sectors or subsectors. So you can see here as an example, um, sector A is for timber products. So if your SIC code was 2411, uh, log storage and handling, you would fall under sector A. And that sector designation will dictate certain um, industry-specific requirements for you to implement and potentially benchmark parameters for you to monitor and analyze for. Some typical provisions, as I mentioned, there is an exclusion for no exposure. So if your facility is completely covered or all activities occur within a storm-resistant shelter as it's defined, then you can um, obtain coverage under the permit through a no exposure exclusion, um, which is a much simpler compliance pathway um, than the typical notice of intent. If you are pursuing a notice of intent, which is more typical, then you are required to develop, develop a stormwater pollution prevent and, and site maps that are accompany that. That's, that stormwater pollution prevention plan, referred to as a SWIP, will identify your industrial activities which activities are exposed to precipitation, and then the different non-structural best management practices or structural best management practices um, that have been identified to mitigate potential stormwater contamination at your site. And then there's obviously some routine facility inspections that are, are usually included in NIFTI's permits and a monitoring component. So quarterly benchmark monitoring is required now under the current 2015 permit but it's only required if your subsector or sector dictates that um, benchmark monitoring parameters apply. As we'll get to later, there is a proposed change here in terms of benchmark monitoring, so stay tuned for that. In addition, there are other monitoring requirements, effluent limitation guidelines, um, state and tribal monitoring, impaired waters, and EPA required monitoring in addition to the previous. Um, and then finally, there are corrective action procedures. So if you identify a corrective action that's needed, uh, you essentially are required to outline a plan for implementing that action. And then uh, reporting, annual reporting, as well as reporting um, collected stormwater data over time. And EPA does have a nice industrial stormwater uh, sampling guide available if anyone's interested, shown on the screen here. Okay, so that's a quick, quick summary of what the current permit includes. Now we're going to move into what's changing in the 2020 MSGP. I want to emphasize again, this is draft. So this is what's currently in the, in the um, draft language of the permit. 
This is obviously subject to change based on the feedback received um, during the 60-day conversation. We've broken down the updates into five major categories shown here. Um, eligibility, stormwater control measure enhancements, monitoring changes, and this what's now called AIM, which is the additional implementation measures. And those two, the monitoring changes and AIM, are potentially the most impactful to sites, which we'll get into. Um, fi finally, uh, the sector-specific fact sheets as well, which prescribe some specific BMPs or best management practices to implement at your facility. And I just want to note that we are highlighting some of these impactful changes, and we'll do a quick summary of uh, other minor changes, but we're not going to cover everything in detail. So, so please follow up if we can't answer your questions today. A couple of proposed changes to permit eligibility. If you discharge to a Superfund site or a surplus site, you may be required to um, notify EPA in advance so that they can determine your eligibility, essentially determining that you will not um, recontaminate um, the resources in that area. And this, this process is already in place in Region 10, so the request here is whether this should apply nationally. In, in addition, there's a permit eligibility requirement proposed for the application of coal tar seal coat. So if you've applied a coal tar seal coat um, through resealing or sealing certain pavement in your facility, you may not be eligible for coverage under this permit. But what's important to note here is that this only applies to the specific areas where industrial activity is occurring. So if you have a facility and you have an industrial area at one portion, and then an employee parking lot that's totally separate and there's no commingling. If you were to apply a coal tar seal coat in the employee parking lot, uh, but not in your industrial area, then you would still be eligible for the permit. Just a little nuance is proposed. So second is this major storm control measure enhancement. Um, essentially, the idea here is to try and identify sites that are more susceptible to extreme flooding an extreme flooding that would impact the site's stormwater quality or quantity during discharge events. And so EPA is requesting comment on how to identify those facilities and then identify specific mitigation measures that may be appropriate for those facilities. All right, moving into monitoring. So there are some monitoring changes proposed. As I mentioned, currently under the, the permit, the 2015 permit, um, benchmark monitoring is required for certain sectors. That represents about 55% of all the facilities in the country um, and, and territories. What's being proposed now is universal benchmark monitoring. So every facility, no matter what, um, would be required to sample and analyze for pH, total suspended solids, and chemical oxygen demand. There is a slight qualifier that we're gonna to get to later for potentially low risk facilities. Um, in addition, there's some changes to the impaired waters monitoring. So currently that's, this is included uh, sampling and, and analyzing for um, the, the receiving water from your site. So if you discharge to a receiving water that's impaired for a certain parameter, um, you're currently required to monitor. One of the big changes here, and this is a slight nuance, is that you are now only required to monitor for that parameter, that impairment, if it is associated with your industrial activities. So if you're receiving water is impaired for nutrients, so nitrogen or phosphorus, but your activities do not contribute nitrogen or phosphorus and you self-identify or self-report that, 
then you're not technically required to sample for those parameters. And if you do sample for them, um, but they're not detected over three consecutive years, then you can discontinue monitoring. There's also the option for a natural background source demonstration, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. There are also some proposed changes to the benchmark values themselves. So you can see here, uh, there's a proposed change for the cadmium benchmark based on new water quality criteria. And based on the National Academy of Sciences report, um, there's the, the recommendation to remove magnesium and iron benchmarks. And from our work in um, the West Coast and throughout the country, this is a potentially significant impact because magnesium and iron is, is abundant in natural soil and the atmosphere as well. And so it can be very difficult to meet some of these, these uh, benchmarks depending on where your facility is located. Uh, but those would potentially be removed. And so those facilities would no longer be subject to those benchmarks. And then there is a request for comment on copper specifically in allowing for a site-specific risk analysis process. And there's more detail in the, in the draft MSGP on that. Still continuing with monitoring, um, there are some sectors where there's EPA is proposing new or expanded suites of benchmarks. So oil and gas, land transportation, warehousing, shipping board building, and repair yards. If you are familiar or, or associated with uh, one of those facilities, you may want to evaluate what is currently being analyzed and look at this new list, um, which is being proposed uh, to expand the suite of, of parameters at those facilities. And this, you still have time to provide comment on, on whether you think those are applicable to those industries. In addition, there's a specific request uh, to whether PAH benchmarks should be added to petroleum hydrocarbon facilities. And you can, that's more uh, detailed in the 2020 MSGP. But just a quick monitoring takeaway, since this, this sometimes tends to be the most onerous task for um, facilities. Under the current draft requirements, all facilities would be required to sample for pH, TSS, and COD. Potentially, there are some low-risk examples where you might only have to inspect and not sample for those parameters. And then the other monitoring requirements are essentially the same. Um, they remain unchanged except for impaired waters. You would have to identify whether that impairment, that, that parameter, is associated with industrial activity and that would determine whether you're required to sample and analyze for it. Just noting at the bottom here, many permits, state administered permits around the site also require facilities to self-determine whether there are other pollutants exposed to precipitation and monitor for those as well. And that could be a much broader suite. That, that process is currently not included in, in the MSGP. Okay, so the next Bigger change is what do you do with that, the monitoring data? Well, there's this new process EPA is proposing called the Additional Implementation Measures, um, and it's a tiered process. I have a lot of slides that go into this in more detail, so I'm just going to kind of try to walk us through the general idea. Please follow up if there are specific questions. But after you collect some data for your, your benchmark parameters, if you exceed certain low thresholds, then as you, you would be elevated into tier one. So that's on the bottom of the screen here. I'm not sure if you can see my mouse. What you're required to do there is review your existing measures, structural control measures, or sorry, stormwater control measures that you've implemented. 
um, and also implement additional measures that you think may improve the water quality of your discharge. And then continue monitoring and see what happens. If you continue to exceed thresholds or you exceed more moderate thresholds, slightly, slightly higher um, or stringent, or sorry, slightly lower thresholds, then uh, you would be required to review what's the new Appendix Q, which is a, a sector-specific EPA fact sheet, which outlines for your industry what um, specific control measures should be implemented to mitigate potential water quality concerns. So you would have to review that. In the next slide, we're gonna show an example and see of all of these uh, control measures, which ones can I implement? And if you cannot implement them, then you have to justify why it's not feasible for implementation. Then you continue monitoring, or if you um, were to exceed some more stringent thresholds, you would be bumped into tier three, which is at the top here. And there is when more costly interventions would come into play. You're required to install permanent controls, potentially infiltration, um, or maybe even active treatment, depending on your situation. Now, a couple things I want to note. Um, in tier three, the option to infiltrate can sometimes feel like the, the best option because it's lower cost. But it is important to note that you're, you're essentially transferring your risk from surface water exceedances to groundwater exceedances. So depending on the sensitivity of your area, you just might want to evaluate that um, if you're ever considering an infiltration project in the future. Um, in addition, it's important to note here the deadlines and time it's available to implement these different measures. 14 days, even up to 90 days for tier three is not a lot of time, so it requires um, proactive planning, or if you think that's technologically or economically infeasible, um, I, I do recommend you provide comment right now under the public comment period. And then the final thing I'll say is that there are some exceptions. Um, if there's a, an anomaly for a tier two event, you may be able to demonstrate that, explain it. In addition, there's the natural background source demonstration, the run-on demonstration. If there are other sources at your site that are not specifically your industrial activities that you believe are causing benchmark exceedances, these different thresholds, then you're able to demonstrate that. Now, as I mentioned, under tier two of the AIM process, there are these sector-specific fact sheets. This is an example here. Um, again, sector A, the timber product facilities, and you can see that they're relatively prescriptive. Um, so it's really important that you review those now, provide comment, but also prepare yourselves for what, uh, which of these BMPs you may be able to implement. We're gonna talk about that a little bit in the slides too. These are just some minor changes. So they're proposing streamlining some of the permit text. Uh, EPA is proposing that. In addition, if, you, if your facility is subject to an enforcement action, then there's a proposed 60-day waiting period uh, before permit coverage is provided. And uh, in addition, um, a requirement to post the public, public sign for indicating permit coverage. And they, what's shown on the screen here are uh, specific requests. Um, EPA is requesting comment on certain requirements. Um, one of them is eligibility for um, sites that store certain chemicals, cationic chemicals a change to the NOI form, um, acronym definitions, and then the last two are a little more important, uh, not important, but a little more substantial, which are alternative approaches to benchmark measuring 
And so they request uh, information on recommendations for how benchmark monitoring could be performed. In addition, as we've talked about, whether or not there are certain low risk sites, which could implement an inspection only process in lieu of benchmarking. <clears throat> so they would request um, information on how to identify those sites and then also how to implement that process. And then the final things here, uh, information about PAHs, any data correlation between PAH and COD, potentially using COD as a surrogate, and then appropriate source control based on your experience. So their EPA is requesting comment on that information. In addition to how to determine a natural background pollutant um, determination, what's the method proposed for that, and some clarifications on um, the sector G monitoring requirements. Please review the, the draft 2020 for more information on those and provide your thoughts based on your experience. Okay, so with the time I have left, I'm gonna just finish with some proactive steps that we would recommend um, taking now. So many of the facilities we work with, unfortunately come to us when it's a little bit too late and they're facing citizen suits or um, notices of violation and these are the things that I wish we could have done one year in advance to try to improve uh, the probability of compliance and just minimize the overall burden and the, and the risk. So two, two relatively easy recommendations are using a available SWIP template. So EPA has their own template, some consultants have their own template. What's helpful here is it really goes through every requirement so you can make sure you're doing everything that's required of the permit. Secondly, confirming your monitoring list. So you wanna make sure that you're not sampling for more parameters than you need to, but you're, you're definitely sampling for all of the required parameters. So this is kind of a point of contention for a lot of the lawsuits we see. And so it's important to go through these lists and, and make sure you understand which of these parameters apply to your facility. Again, um, with the change here for impaired waters parameters, um, that those only apply if they're applicable to your industrial activity. And then one thing we do recommend is a, a facility SWIP or BMP audit. Um, it's, it's recommended that this be done by a third party only because then you don't have the relationship with site staff and it's easier to really understand what's happening. But it doesn't have to be a third party. You could have an operator um, at the facility conduct this SWIP audit and that works well too. But really the main goal here is to review the SWIP, make sure it's compliant, but also make sure it matches what's happening on the ground. So a lot of the times we read a SWIP, it looks pretty good, and then we go to the site and we interview the operators or the staff and realize that half of it's outdated, half of it was never communicated, and it's not being implemented. So it starts to sort of align what the staff understand and what the SWIP is actually saying and documenting. Another important aspect of these audits is to look for where all the industrial activities are occurring and understanding the different drainage patterns on your site to make sure that if you have a number of sampling locations, that you're sampling all of the discharges that would commingle with industrial activities at your site. And then in addition, confirming which pollutants are associated with those activities and also their level of exposure. You may have a, a source of material uh, that has copper, for instance, but if it's always covered, then that would not necessarily be a parameter you'd have to monitor for, um, for the impaired waters monitoring. And then the last two, uh, one, training staff uh, is really important. One of the big things we see is just data entry. 
um, you know, reviewing units can be a big, big concern, um, which we, we've seen lawsuits over incorrect units being entered. Um, and also just understanding what kind of language to use in reporting and, and constituting what, what is actually a discharge. A discharge is only when something leaves your site. Uh, but a lot of staff might report a discharge if they see something that's fallen within your site boundary. And that can raise a red an unnecessary red flag. So there are certain things that can be that can be trained so that all, all the staff understand kind of the whole, the bigger picture of the purpose of this permit. And then finally, consider third party litigation risk. That's not really the focus here, um, but it is something you wanna consider. What, what is available to the public, uh, whether that's what can people see from the street, from Google Earth, um, and what kind of data will be available. And just try to make sure that, what, that you button up your site and you, and you increase the probability of compliance based on taking some of these uh, proactive measures. So this is just uh, honing in a little bit more on, on the big picture of these audits. In order to try to reduce your long-term costs, something you, we recommend doing now is segregating industrial and non-industrial runoff. So you're really only trying to address that industrial runoff. And then within that industrial area, reducing the actual industrial activities that are exposed to precipitation. So that could be moving things indoors, covering them with storm resistant shelters, things that you can advise your, your potential clients on. And what this is doing is really just minimizing the area that's covered by the permit. And therefore in the future, if you do have to implement control measures, um, you're only implementing those for a much smaller area instead of the entire facility if everything was commingled. If you don't have that luxury, then you may have to look at bolstering or adding other BMPs or control measures now to try to improve the water quality. So really what you're trying to do here is, again, sample only for the required parameters based on what's exposed, so, so limiting that exposure. And then identifying what are the low cost measures that could be implemented now that may minimize your long-term uh, your, your long cost. So it might minimize your coverage area, which means that when you do have to implement something that's more robust, you're only doing it for a small, uh, small area. And then a few final, final recommendations, looking at eligibility, obviously we, we presented some potential changes. So it's important to review those now and figure out what you can do to be eligible for the permit if you need to. And then evaluate flooding at your facility. Has flooding been an issue? Um, talk to the staff, talk to operators and understand what happens during a rainstorm. And if it has been an issue, try to consider what improvements to your drainage uh, features could you make now? to try to mitigate any potential negative impacts in the future. And then finally start looking at some of your monitoring. So we already recommended looking through the different um, parameters that apply, but also reviewing any data that you have available and starting to predict uh, your compliance pathway, which we're going to look at in, in two slides. But also for facilities that are not currently monitoring, they may have to start thinking through who's collecting samples, what laboratory are we using, um, we need a courier. So these are all little things that it's helpful to start thinking about now um, so you're not scrambling at the very end. And then as we mentioned already, um, perform a close review of these sector specific fact sheets to understand what you've already implemented, what can feasibly impl be implemented, and what um, may not be able to be implemented at your site. And finally, submit comments by June 1st. You still have a couple weeks. 
So if you're able to review um, and, and offer your thoughts, I'm sure EPA would, would appreciate them. And then um, this is my final slide before I take it or turn it over to David. And I just want to kind of, th this sort of summarizes our overall recommendation for anticipating your compliance pathway. So on the top in the green, if you feel like you have benchmark, benchmark parameters that you're required to monitor for because of your sector, but you know, or you're very confident that your industrial activities um, are not associated with that parameter, then we would recommend starting to plan for a natural background, a run-on, or a non-industrial demonstration, and maybe start collecting data now so that in the future, if you do have to demonstrate that, that you already have a weight of evidence that's available to you. Uh, moving to the blue, if you have data available, have you been exceeding benchmarks? Are there things you can be implementing? Um, review the, the tier two sector fact sheets and maybe consider implementing some of these low cost measures now um, to try to improve your compliance probabilities later. And then if your benchmarks are changing or if there are new benchmarks, maybe compare your data you have to those new benchmarks so you can anticipate what might happen in the future and start planning some of those long-term structural control measures, um, which as we've recommended previously, would also include segregating industrial non-industrial runoff and minimizing your industrial activity exposed to precipitation uh, to minimize that, that burden on the facility. And then finally, if you don't have data, you're, you're not sure about all your industrial activities, we'd recommend looking at the literature, talking to colleagues, um, you know, through, through trade shows or trade groups um, and other colleagues to understand, are there other facilities similar to yours in your region and what are they facing? Um, are they collecting data? You can look at their data if it's available and start to try to plan your, your pathway now. So our hope is that you're able to take some of these proactive measures and again, minimize long-term costs, uh, minimize risk, but also comply with the permit requirements and protect the water quality around our region. So with that, um, I am gonna end there and hand it over to David and would love to talk, uh, take your questions after David's presentation. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Adam. Can you hear me okay, Adam? You were breaking up a little bit. Oh, I was. Uh, sorry about that. Yeah, I I, no, no, I wasn't sure if it was my headset or not. Apologize. Yeah, you sound good now. Okay, great. Hey, thanks, Adam. So that was really good. Excellent summary. I learned a lot. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, one point of clarification, though, um, I did want to make was on the coal tar sealant eligibility. I think you mentioned... Um, I just didn't want folks to get the impression that if they had pre-existing coal tar sealant on their site that they wouldn't be eligible. So this is, this is only a proposal and it is prospective. In other words, any new uh, sealing or resealing would be, uh, would be the issue, um, not existing. Enough. Okay. And I'm sorry, I got to uh, restart this. Uh, Apologize.
I just had a glitch that I had to get through. Um, so just to let everyone remind everybody um, that, um, you know, clearly this is only a summary, both Adam and myself are discussing the permit. Um, it's, it's not that it's a difficult permit, but it's, it's a involved permit, it's complicated. There's a lot to it, there's a lot of pages. Um, so if there are any discrepancies, and I think there already are some, if you go and look at the, the permit online, um, uh, basically, you know, the permit, the draft permit governs, not what we're saying here. Uh, so in terms of um, the contents of the proposed changes, um, essentially the, the vast majority, almost all of them um, are a result of 16 settlement agreement that we had and um, that agreement uh, that settlement agreement required the, the study by the National, National Academies as, as, as Adam mentioned. Um, again we can't lose focus here I mean uh, every time we uh, propose a requirement ultimately we are looking to minimize the discharges of pollutants to um, to you know from your stormwater from your industrial activity. Um, and then again, since this is a general permit covering 30 different sectors and many more subsectors, um, you really, uh, you may hear from a, from a peer that you need to do X, but in reality, that X may not apply to your sector. So uh, there is still a lot of uniqueness to this permit, even though it is a general permit um, that one might think applies to everybody the same. Um, and again, as, as Adam mentioned, Clearly, we're looking for input from the regulated community. Um, that's the whole purpose of, of noticing um, this permit in draft form. We want to hear some feedback, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so that we can uh, better refine the permit and make it workable and, and most protective uh, as possible. Um, so what I wanted to do is, is um, discuss some of the key elements of the existing permit, because I think Adam clearly um, covered, uh, you know, the proposed changes, but I think sometimes we might lose uh, track of all of the existing permit requirements that will be ongoing. Um, so there is still a lot of, a, a lot of uh, uh, requirements that are, that are still in place. And then uh, with time permitting, I'll, I'll touch upon some of our electronic tools for applying for coverage, reporting, and public access of this information. Um, again, uh, you can Come back and look at, at the docket itself and you can view the permit. The permit is well annotated and redlined and very specifically requests uh, comments in a very clear manner um, as you move through the document so you can uh, really key in very quickly on uh, the subject matter of the permit that you might be interested in. Um, and again, just for um, just to let you know, if you just Google EPA MSGP, you're, you're going to go to our homepage. That's the quickest way to get get there. Um, so basically the 2020 MSGP is the fifth iteration of this general permit um, dating back to 1995 when it was originally issued and even before then when we had requested um, information back in the 92 application process. Um, so it's the, dating back to the 95, the 2000, the 2008, the 2015 and now the 2020. Um, however, generally, the, the permit has really been fairly similar in requirements over that time and generally had the same basic approach, if you will. Um, you know, corrective actions and additional Im implementation measures are, are more novel additions and uh, they do make the permit more self-implementing. 
Um, so this is basically what you want to look at standing back. Uh, as Adam mentioned, a lot of preparation, but also you have to prepare, am I even eligible for this general permit? So be, depending upon who you are or where you discharge, you may not be eligible for it. You may require an individual permit or you may be required not to discharge at all. Um, so there's a development in, in this case of a new SWIP if you haven't been permitted before. Um, many permittees already have had coverage for the 2015 and earlier permits. So in their, in their cases, they'll be refining or updating their SWIP to match the requirements of, of the new proposal. Um, and then you need to seek coverage, um, submitting a notice of intent, an NOI uh, for authorization, um, as, as opposed to a no exposure exclusion. We can talk about that afterwards. And then, you know, taking some actions, you're basically employing control measures uh, to meet all of the effluent limits that are, that are uh, described in the permit. You have some monitoring requirements, some inspection requirements, and then um, where those, where your inspections, your monitoring data suggests that um, you're not controlling stormwater appropriately, then there's some actions that you need to take to correct that. And then there's ultimately some, uh, like most permits, reporting either throughout the permit, uh, typically on an annual basis or more frequently in the case of data, uh, if you're so required to monitor. Um, I think I want to remind everyone first and foremost, it's really important because there are quite a few facilities that, that satisfy a condition of no exposure as we know it. And that's really your first line of defense here is, hey, are there some simple um, steps that I can take to wholly eliminate uh, any industrial activity or, or materials from uh, exposure to rainwater and, and, and snowmelt and, and runoff potentially, and thus subsequent runoff. And that's obviously where you want to head if, if it's possible. In other words, can I move everything indoors? Can I put some temporary shelters up? Um, so it's a mutually exclusive process. You're, you're basically uh, excluded from the permit if you can satisfy this condition of no exposure. And it's a good for, good for a five-year term, which, um, you know, if any time during that exclusion, you, you recognize that you can no longer satisfy that condition of no exposure, then an NOI would be required. Um, uh, but there are, and I think we also have to think that it's not always a, a four-walled building with a roof. And, and, you know, we do have some, you know, particular definitions of what, what a, you know, a, a shelter is. And there are some exclusions with respect to what types of materials or equipment may still uh, be exposed, but not uh, trigger exposure as we would know it. And therefore one would still satisfy or could, could apply for a no exposure exclusion, which means you don't do anything other than submit the NOI itself every five years. And then, as I mentioned in the earlier, um, in addition to these new proposed eligibility provisions that Adam mentioned, there's sti still um, existing eligibility requirements in place. Um, so first and foremost, your, your discharges can't be mixed with unauthorized non-stormwater non discharges. And I'll, I'll define later what is an allowable and a non-allowable non non-stormwater discharge. Uh, it specifically does not include construction activities except for the mining sectors where there is some uh, typical earth moving activities that might be involved. So there was a fusion of the construction general permit with the uh, multi-sector general permit for mining sectors in particular. Um, 
if you're already covered by an individual permit or another general permit, um, you're not going to be eligible unless you, you know, uh, get EPA approval to do that. And that is possible. And there have been some cases where we've uh, transitioned a facility from one permit to the multi-sector under certain conditions and sort of carried over in addition to the existing multi-sector requirements, the permits, the requirements from the, from the existing individual permit. Um, and then uh, certainly those facilities that are that that um, are subject to specific effluent limitation guidelines, as as published by by EPA, um, those would not be allowed. Other than the ones we've already identified, and, and really for the vast majority, um, EPA has already allowed any facility that has a stormwater specific effluent limitation guideline that applies to their discharge eligibility under this permit. Um, and then in terms of um, uh, new, excuse me, new dischargers and new sources. I think that's something you may want to look at in particular. It's not a new discharge, it's a new discharger, and it's a, and it's a defined term. Um, uh, and specifically, um, a new discharger is a facility from which there is or may have been a discharge that commenced, commenced after August 1979, which has never received a NIPTES permit. Um, so in many cases, facilities have always um, uh, don't meet this definition of a new discharger or a new source. And uh, I'm not going to define new source at this point, but uh, suffice to say, um, if you are a new discharger or a new source and you're discharging into specific types of waters, specifically as we note them, a tier two or 2.5 water or a tier three water, there are eligibility uh, issues. Tier three in particular, um, if you're discharging into a special resource water, then you are ineligible um, for, um, for permit coverage. But your, your tier two waters in Massachusetts are outstanding resource waters and high quality waters, uh, which basically class A public water supplies, their tributaries, bordering wetlands, vernal pools, the like. So there is, there is um, some additional eligibility hurdles that one needs to meet if, if that applies to your facility. Um, and those those classifications or qualifiers, as DEP notes them, can be, find, can be found in 314 CMR4, which is uh, Massachusetts Water Quality Standards, where they identify specific, segment, uh, specific uh, water body segments and whether or not they are a high quality water, ORW, water supply, so on and so forth. Um, there are still eligibility requirements with respect to the Endangered Species Act and historic properties. Suffice to say, for the vast majority of folks that have already gone through this process for the 95, uh, 2015 permit, there is going to be a streamlined process by which um, uh, it's going to be a lot simpler to satisfy those eligibility requirements. Uh, but there are very prescriptive appendices that give step-by-step -step guidance on how one would determine their eligibility. And in some cases, they may have to speak to uh, fish and wildlife or marine fisheries to confirm that what they're doing and what they're discharging is not impacting or is not likely or, <clears throat> excuse me, not likely to adversely affect, uh, you know, the habitat of an endangered species. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the permit does not allow um, certain all stormwater, non-stormwater discharges except for, save for these particular bulleted items here. Obviously, we recognize emergency firefighting. We have to allow that. But uh, bottom line is um, <clears throat> the remainder of the discharges basically need to be uncontaminated, free of detergents, hazardous cleaning products.
products, um, and in some cases control to minimize the mobilization of pollutants when we talk about um, wash waters in particular when we offer pavements and buildings so that we're not allowing sediment and, and um, those things to become entrained in the runoff. So where it's not an outright, um, uh, you know, ex exclusion to other, other flows getting into your stormwater and mixing with them, but clearly uh, we, we limit them to a refined set as you see here. Um, and by the way, if, if you can't eliminate those, you're, you know, you're going to have to demonstrate that they're covered by another permit, they're going to a sanitary sewer, they're being recycled, but they can't be allowed under the uh, industrial stormwater permit. Um, basically, um, the, the NIPTES multi-sector permit still relies on non-numeric limits uh, developed uh, using best professional judgment, uh, really except for the, the numeric limitations that are identified by Absolute limitation guidelines, which I mentioned earlier. Um, and, you know, EPA expects compliance with the permit conditions will control discharges as necessary to meet water quality standards, and we're not, you know, corrective actions are required. And in fact, you know, EPA can also require additional control measures or an individual permit if we feel as though um, that's not being satisfied. And, you know, Adam touched upon the required monitoring for discharges into what I term pre-TMDL waters, those water bodies which are impaired but have not yet had a, a TMDL waste load allocation developed for them and for the particular pollutants. Um, but as I mentioned earlier in the um, eligibility step, you know, uh, additional measures may be required um, to be consistent with the anti-degradation requirements that, that um, MassDEP has for new discharges and new sources. So if you're discharging into one of those water bodies as a new discharger, let's say, we and or MassDEP may require additional control measures be put in place before you're um, eligible to seek coverage under the permit. Um, and it's important to remember T-bells are really the heart of the MSGP. Uh, they're uh, arguably very straightforward, commonsensical measures. And I think stepping back and really looking at the heart of it, this is really what we're asking for, um, for folks to minimize exposure, you know, practice good housekeeping, manage your stormwater, control your salt piles, um, train your employees, those sorts of things. They're very, uh, uh, very straightforward in many ways and I think go a significant way into controlling the, the discharge of pollutants in your stormwater. And, you know, uh, except for just a very few uh, prescriptive controls, um, such as like EPA mentioning if your catch basins reach two thirds full in their sump, they need to be cleaned. The vast majority of these um, uh, T-bells as we call them, or the control measures to satisfy these T-bells um, are, are very flexible and, and they allow uh, operators to identify which work best for their site due to their constraints. Um, so may, many, like the vast majority of EPA's NIPTES permits in general, we, we don't necessarily tell you how to do it, you just have to do it to meet a, a particular limit, whether or not that limit be a numeric uh, uh, concentration or a narrative standard. Um, so again, each limit is written and required uh, the implementation of control measures, measures to basically minimize the pollutant discharge define specifically what minimize and feasible uh, are in the permit with respect to the multi-sector general permit. And if I can um, really cut to the chase, we're looking for you to reduce and or eliminate to the extent feasible. Um, 
at your site. Um, as Adam mentioned, you know, we have a timeline here. Um, June 1st, we're gonna receive, uh, is the end of the public comment period. Um, we are hoping to see this permit out by November timeframe uh, per the settlement agreement, it needs to be. Whether or not we can get some relief on that based on COVID or other uh, extenuating circumstances is yet to be determined. But uh, per what we typically do, once the permit is finalized, we look for NOIs 90 days after the permit's finalized for existing facilities that have existing coverage under the 2015. For all those facilities that don't currently have coverage, it's an immediate NOI filing deadline. Um, and then just the highlighted portions here, I just wanna to touch upon the, the Clean Water Act 401 water quality certification conditions and um, what, new what, we, what we're calling about new facilities. So after that June 4th date, an MSGP is not gonna be available for coverage for anyone that doesn't already have a permit. If you have a permit, you're good to go. You're administratively continued until we get the new permit in place and you refile next year. If you don't currently have a permit, you're gonna be in a gap uh, situation where there's gonna be no permit to apply for. And I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but in terms of uh, all of our permits, when we issue, uh, they, they need to be certified by the state that we're in compliance with the water quality standards of that state. So just to make you aware, um, in this case, this permit's issued in Massachusetts and New Hampshire, MassDEP and New Hampshire DES, both have the right and the obligation to require additional measures. So for instance, under the 2015 MassDEP and CZM combined a comment letter and required some additional requirements for marine sectors. And uh, New Hampshire DES required some on-site uh, infiltration requirements uh, for, for operators located in their state. Um, and again, nothing is um, clarified here, but again, after June 4th, there's gonna be no permit for new operators without existing coverage to seek, um, seek coverage. Back in 2013, or 2013, excuse me, when, um, uh, when the last permit was expiring and we didn't have a new permit available for folks, um, we did uh, exercise some enforcement discretion and, and issued the so-called no action assurance memo that laid out a process by which facilities could go ahead and uh, show their intent to comply with the permit, uh, identify that they met eligibility, they notify us, and they basically uh, pretend they had permit coverage, do everything but actually submit, submit uh, data to us. And we did you know, indicate that we would give some enforcement forbearance under certain circumstances, but it didn't, didn't provide any uh, uh, third-party lawsuit protection. And then just very quickly, I just wanted to touch upon um, um, how one interfaces and files an electronic NOI, how they can change it, how they can file a uh, notice of uh, <clears throat> no exposure uh, exclusion, excuse me, uh, how they can submit their annual reports and how they would go about if, if, let's say for instance, your client is one of those facilities that doesn't have coverage and needs it after June 4th, how they would go about doing that. So let me just uh, close this here. So did I lose anyone's screen? It looks good. Okay, good, thanks. Just because I'm sort of bootstrapping this. 
So this, that was the CDX login page. Basically, if you're already covered by a permit, you're aware of that. But basically, everybody that, not just the multi-sector general permit, but EPA is moving totally to an electronic format for all of our permitting. So you'll be requiring a, an account through the central data exchange or CDX. And, you know, both owners and consultants can all get their own CDX accounts and get certain permissions to access those um, particular permits for their clients. And then within the actual permits of, of uh, specifically related to the multi-sector, um, you can set up certain permissions that one person can develop an NOI, but um, a CEO might need to sign the NOI uh, and actually electronically, electronically certify to it and submit it. But um, just to be very quick here, this is gonna be uh, a setup where, where one has a CDX account they might not be clicking on signatory, they might be uh, clicking on a, um, a different role, but this is going to open up <clears throat> the CDX account for a particular um, user. And it's gonna show in some cases, if, if it's a corporate, a corporate account, they might have five or six different sites all over the country. So they can list all of their different facilities. Um, so in essence, these are just some, some dummy filings that I've put in place here. And to show you very quickly, this is an electronic NOI form. And everything is done. It's not electronic just in terms of uh, print and fill or fill and save it as a PDF. It truly is a, a true electronic form. And it, it allows users to go in and create a change NOI if something needs to be changed as a result of a modification or elimination of a particular outfall, let's say, or a change in activity where they might now be doing something else that's a co-located activity at the site. And they can also come in and manage their annual reports here with create, uh, create annual reports. And they can actually view, view the annual reports. I'm just showing them as viewed at this point. But it's very much an online process. Um, but at this point, if somebody um, does not have existing permit coverage and they need it, they uh, would basically still file for the CDX uh, account. They would add a facility. We don't want someone to duplicate a facility, so we want to make sure that they uh, don't do that. So I just sort of um, put that in as a dummy variable. And they're going to come up here and just simply uh, type in, hey, where is your facility? I'm not located in Indian lands. I'm not a federal operator. Uh, and here is where they would determine uh, or identify, I want to submit an intent to operate in accordance with the 2015 MSGP. So we're calling this an ITO rather than an NOI. And these are for folks that are not previously covered by the uh, 2015 general permit. And by doing that, you basically <clears throat> are agreeing to the terms and, and this for ease, we're, gonna, we're not a new discharger. We haven't been covered by another permit. Um, we're not going into a tier three water. These are all these eligibility criteria that might kick you out of, of actually getting a permit. Um, so those might look familiar. And I'm just gonna say, permit, you know, um, company is Acme and just to show you I have the ability to sign I'm going to go to form 
And this is going to allow me to fill out this form online. And you're going to see where you have all these different tabs to add all of your different information. And in fact, you can, um, we have a, a tool here where you can identify an outfall. It'll put a lat long in for you. And then it will actually identify um, So that's where my facility might be. And then for discharge information, um, <clears throat> just to show you quickly, I'm going to add a discharge point. But if I don't know, it's automatically going to uh, number them 001 down through. I'm just going to click on my map and say, that's where I discharge. It's going to populate it. And then there's a lookup tool that's going to um, go to our database and identify the, the closest water body which might be in this case, Poor Farm Brook. I'm gonna select that and it's gonna identify um, the water body ID in, in, in terms of how MassDEP identifies it. I'm gonna say it's not a tier two, 2.5. And I'm, in this case, it's identified it as a pollutant that's uh, sediment is an impairment. So it's a, just a, a very rapid overview that that's how folks would apply for an NOI, but now those individuals that need um, to at least uh, demonstrate to, to EPA that they're aware that a permit exists or that they need coverage, they can go through this ITO process, whereby when the permit becomes available, those, those data can be easily transferred, uploaded into an NOI that will make the filing that much, much simpler. So I think we went over, so I'll stop there, Ann. <laughs> Thank you very much, David. Yeah. I, uh, I appreciate that demonstration. Uh, it shows the, um, the comprehensive nature of the electronic filing system now in place, and uh, hopefully that'll facilitate the new permits um, implementation as well. So thank you very much. I've checked the Q&A. We are over time just a little bit, but there are no open questions. So um, I guess I will conclude uh, just by saying, Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you, David and Adam, very much for sharing your expertise and knowledge. And um, I know this was very dense, uh, so I'm um, happy that it was recorded so that we can all <laughs> review uh, the slides and your remarks uh, at a later time as well. So thank you very much. Thank you also, Daniel, for helping with the technical aspects of the, uh, of the event. And uh, have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye.